so first service, um, our, our building barely uh, did what it could do. Um, people were everywhere, literally everywhere, um, sitting everywhere. So in light of that, too, it's just been kind of getting that way more and more for first service, even during uh, spring break. That service is swelling, so we've just made a decision two weeks from today. First service is going to be at 8.45, and uh, the second service can be moved to 10.45. We'll get that out to everybody. Um, that's not next Sunday, but the following Sunday. From the staff of uh, Crossroads, happy Easter, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Let's uh, turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Stepping away from Mark's gospel today. God, uh, <laughs> God led, led my heart to this passage uh, on Monday of this week, Romans 8. Some people would call this uh, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Romans 8, beginning with verse 18. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Paul writing to Christians living in Rome. They're beginning to endure persecution. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes in what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we, to pr what we should pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance to the perfect will of God. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among a great family, many brothers and sisters. And those Christ predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. This is God's word for this morning. You may be seated. So this uh, text begins with Paul talking about suffering, and I've already alluded to the, to the suffering uh, of his time. It's uh, 
the suffering of being a Christ follower in a Roman world that hates Christ and more and more is hating Christ followers. But I think we know suffering in our world as well. I mean, the past year we've seen a lot of suffering. I've spent more time in hospitals from COVID to cancer, seeing people suffer, seeing families suffer. The Brookhouses, by the way, are here today. I've seen medical staff suffer, just helping those suffering. I've done more funerals in the last two years than all my time in ministry. We know the statistics right now, the statistics on depression and addiction, loneliness. But we don't even have to know the statistics. These things are just part of our reality. So much groaning. And I know that there have been times in my ministry life when, when I'd come to a verse like verse 22 in our text where Paul talks about we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, uh, where, where I'd read a verse like that and if I'd teach it, I'd feel like I'd need to explain that verse. Like, but I don't have to explain that today. And this, this word that Paul uses for, for groans, it, it's in the original language, it's, it's someone in pain, an enormous pain, like a woman in childbirth or a dying soldier on the battlefield. Grand Rapids is groaning. Groans that are emanating from strife from injustice, from racism, violence, from greed, selfishness. Like a woman in childbirth, our, our, our city's groaning. Then you look past our city and you look into our world and like, where do I even start? We live in a world that, that, that is groaning, a world that is in pain, in enormous pain, a world that is not what God intended the world to be. A world that is sick with the tumor of sin that is given over to, as Paul talks about, this bondage to decay. And then in verse 23, Paul says, we groan. And he's not just talking to people here in, in general. He, he's talking to Christians living in Rome. In other words, he's saying Christians aren't exempt. Paul says we groan inwardly. And here we are, I know, it, I didn't forget what day it is. Uh, we're, we're here today to celebrate the resurrection that we've been brought from death into life, that we've been set free from sin and death, even that the very spirit that raised Christ from the dead is making his home in us. Yet in light of all of that, though, we still live in this fallen, unredeemed world and we exist in these fallen, unredeemed bodies that still sin, that still suffer, 
that live in this state of decay and eventually will die. And so if, if, if you're a Christ follower today and, and, and you're groaning and, and you think that there's something wrong with you because you're groaning because you're thinking Christians aren't supposed to groan, well, you are badly mistaken. Paul is saying here, we who possess the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, we too groan. And then Paul explains why we groan. I mean, look at verses 23 through 25. He says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. And then he says, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we will wait for it patiently. In other words, what Paul is saying, the reason why we groan is we don't have everything that God has promised us. And so we wait. Do you know today what God has promised you? We already get hints of this in verse 18 when Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's what's promised. Glory. <laughs> well, what's glory? See, this is where we need to use our imagination. Think of the best food. The best music. Think of the most beautiful face. Think of the best athlete. The best romance. The best of anything that this world has to offer. That is barely a hint of the glory that is to come. And Christians spend so much time talking about how we're justified in Christ, but, but Jesus didn't just come to the world to forgive us, as great as that is. He came to the world to also restore us, rehabilitate us, reconcile us, to resurrect us. And I think one of the verses that just sums all of this up is 1 John 3, verse 2, where it says, Dear friends, right now we are children of God. That's an awesome thought in and of itself. And what we will be has not yet been made known. It has not been revealed, but this is what we know. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. That should take our breath away. I mean, what does this mean that we're going to be like him? It means that we're going to be godlike. We're going to be gods and goddesses. We're going to be perfect reflections of, of God himself, of Christ himself. And, and, and this includes every facet of what makes you, you. It's going to include your character. It's going to include your mind. It's going to include your heart. Paul says, too, we even groan for the redemption of our bodies. It's going to include our bodies. Boy, those of us that are getting older, we sure know what that groan is like, don't we? 
I'm going to rely a little bit on C.S. Lewis today because writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, they understand that the Bible is not just a systematic theology textbook, but that the Bible is first and foremost a story. It's an epic. It's the greatest epic that's ever been written. And then they write story, an epic, in many ways to make sense of this great epic. So they're so helpful. But uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, reflecting on our future glory, he writes this. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. I mean, right now you're in a room of possible future gods and goddesses. And he says, to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses and to remember that even the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, what that person is becoming, if you could see that, you'd be tempted to worship. And this is why Lewis concludes his thought. He says, right now, we are but a flea, a gnat, a bug in light of what we are becoming. And I think one of the reasons why Christians talk so little about our future glory is because in our present state, it's unimaginable. It's inconceivable. We are so far right now from all that we are becoming. We are nothing but a mere shadow but maybe it might be helpful if we looked at this through the angle of the angels because, because for some reason, even though none of us, I don't think, have seen an angel, we, we, our minds can imagine just how awesome an angel is. I mean, whenever they appear in the biblical story, people are afraid. They're in total awe. They confuse that creature for God himself. They fall down and they worship because they're just these stunningly awesome create creatures. But the Bible says that we will become greater than the angels themselves. And I like how Paul puts this in, in verse 19. He, he depicts all creation like this little kid at a Super Bowl parade, a little kid who's kind of standing on his tiptoes, straining his neck, just waiting for the stars, for the champions to come out. All creation is just waiting for that moment when the stars are going to come out. The stars are going to be us in all of our glory. And that's why other places in the Bible, it, it describes this moment and it says the trees of the field are going to clap their hands. The rocks are going to sing. The mountains are going to burst forth in song. And the angels are going to fall down and worship. And think about how committed God is to this project of rehabilitating us and restoring us. I mean, that's what we celebrate on Good Friday. I mean, to think that Jesus came across all worlds to our worlds and that he actually stood in Adam's shoes, in our shoes. And all the groaning that's ta talked about in this text, he just took it upon himself. And yet he faithfully refused to be like Adam and to be like us. And he entered our fallen mess and refused. He refused to be fallen in it. And step by step of his life, blow by blow, 
through fire and trial, temptation and struggle, Jesus hammered out the life that Adam was supposed to live, that we were supposed to live, loving his father with all his heart, all his soul, all his strength, living life to the full through the Holy Spirit, only to die the death that you and I deserve to die. And when he died, Adam's fallen existence died with him. And when he was raised, we see in the risen Christ everything that we're becoming, what we will one day be, what our world will be, and the only way to describe this is new creation. And that project has already begun. And that's why Paul writes what he writes in verse 28. He says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. I mean, this is probably one of the most loved verses in the Bible, but also maybe one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Because so many people take Romans 8, 28 to, me, to mean that um, if I lose my job, well, God's going to work all things for good and he has a better job for me. Or if I lose the girlfriend, well, he's going to work all things for good. He has a better girlfriend in mind for me. Or I lose the house, well, he's going to work that for good. There's a better house that God has for me. But that is not the promise of Romans 8 verse 28. It's not the promise of better circumstances or a better life. Because if you think about it, our biggest problem right now is not our circumstances, as good or bad as they might be. Our biggest problem right now that which needs the most changing is ourself. Whether it's foolishness, laziness, bitterness, greed, selfishness, pride, the need to be in control, the need for attention, these are the things that destroy us and destroy the people around us far more than circumstances. And so the promised good here is a better you. And Paul's thought in verse 28 continues uh, to verse 30 where he says, And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. So the better you is not just even a justified you, a forgiven you, but it's a glorified you. And then when you look at the verse right in the heart of that section, verse 29, Paul says, For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's where this whole thing is going. We're going to be like him. In fact, this word for conformed is the Greek word morphed. God is utterly committed to not just forgiving us, but he wants to literally morph us, transform us into the very glory of his son. Well, maybe it's because I got in a lot of trouble growing up in, in school. Um, but I had a few teachers and coaches who would sometimes say to me, you know, Rod, you're nothing like your older brother. When I read this passage, 
I hear God saying, you know what, Rod, one day you're going to be just like your older brother who's Christ. If I listen to what C.S. Lewis uh, writes, he says, God said in the Bible that he will make the feeblest and the filthiest, the filthy of us, filthiest of us into a god or a goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. This process will be long and in parts very painful, but this is what we're in for. Nothing less. God meant what he said. And how is God doing this? Well, Paul starts in verse 23. He says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits, I don't know if you know this, is a resurrection term. I mean, elsewhere, Paul talks about Christ being the fruits, first fruits from the dead. And I don't know if you know this, but first fruits is the, the name of a Jewish holiday. It's actually a holiday uh, that falls on the Sunday following Passover. So today, Jews all over the world, while we celebrate Easter, they are celebrating first fruits. In an ancient time, on this holiday, this is when you took your first and best from the harvest and you presented it to God in the temple with the idea that God is bringing life out of the earth and we're going to give him our first and best. And there is a huge harvest that awaits for us. So I don't think it's coincidental that Jesus is raised on this holiday of first, fir first fruits. In fact, days before this holiday, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I'm going to be planted in the ground like a seed but when that seed goes into the ground and dies, it will bear forth much fruit. And that's exactly what Jesus, he wasn't buried, he was planted. And he is the first fruits of resurrection of this great harvest of life coming out of the earth that is to follow. And Paul here says that we have the first fruits of the spirit, the spirit that literally raised Christ from the dead. The spirit that hovered over creation uh, over the chaos when God created the world, that spirit right now makes his home in us. And then Paul talks about what the spirit does for us. In verses 26 and 27, Paul says in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness. We live in a society today that doesn't do weakness. It doesn't talk about weakness. It doesn't admit Weakness, and yet we have a God whose heart is just intricately bound to the weak. And Paul says we have a, a spirit who helps us in our weakness, and we do not even know what we ought to pray for uh, in some of those seasons, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the very will of God. And so we as Christians ought to be very comfortable being weak, even admitting our desperation, 
uh, and, and in that place, be confident about what the Spirit of God is doing on our behalf. I mean, think about those times when you've been in pain or spiritually dry or drowning in shame and guilt, overwhelmed with life where you don't even know how to pray anymore. And Paul says the spirit who makes his home in us, who's in our agony, he's agonizing with us. And he knows exactly what we need. And he is laying those petitions before the throne of God, interceding, groaning on our behalf. That's going on right now. See, this is why Jesus calls the spirit the paraclete, because paraclete uh, is, uh, is just a friend who walks alongside you in your pain. And the Holy Spirit is, is, is that friend, but he's not just a friend who walks alongside of us in our pain, but he also is the friend who has the power to raise all the dead things in us to life. And his promise to us is that one day he will. See, this is why for the Christian, our groaning and our pain and our suffering, it's not a waste. It's not meaningless. It's, it, it's not the end. I mean, I think about the three greatest moments in my life. The three greatest moments in my life is when my three kids came into the world. But I'll tell you, there was a lot of groaning in that room before that happened. And that's why Paul's using this imagery, the glory of new creation. It's going to come not in spite of, but it's going to come through the groans, through the pain, through the suffering, through the death. And yet in all this, not only do we have the Holy Spirit, but Paul gives us assurance of something. In verse 28, he says, we know. We know, we know, we know. This is not we hope. This is not we think. This is not we, we feel. This is not we have our fingers crossed. This is we know. God is working. He is orchestrating all things into this greater good, this future glory that God has for us. And I know some of you are looking at your life right now and you're saying, well, what good can God bring out of this situation? And why does it have to hurt so bad? And why does it have to be so hard? Remember Joseph? Remember at the end of his life what he says to his brothers? He says, what you guys intended for evil, God intended for good. I mean, he's saying this to brothers who rejected him, who, who wanted to kill him, but eventually sold him into slavery. And their reason for that is because 
I mean, when you read about Joseph as a young kid, he's cocky, he's smug, he's in, insensitive, he's, he's conceited, he's, he's always basking and being dad's favorite. And how does God change a guy like that? He breaks him. He puts Joseph in pits, in dungeons, strips him of all his comfort. So by the end of the Joseph story, we see a completely changed Joseph, a changed heart, a godlike, glorious king ruling over all of Egypt. And Joseph is exactly right. What those brothers intended for evil, God used all of that for great good. Or look at the supreme example of this. Jesus, despised, rejected, misunderstood, his whole life, one suffering after another, culminating in the brutal pain on the cross, abandoned even by his father. The whole world goes completely dark. Those disciples are probably thinking, this is the worst thing ever. Yet out of the darkest moment in all of history, God brought about the greatest good. His death led to life, resurrection life. His weakness, his, his humiliation led to the greatest exaltation. And his groaning was turned to glory. So right now, if you feel abandoned, if you feel like life couldn't be any worse, know that God right now, he is working all things for good. He's morphing all of us into something far greater into glory. In fact, one of the things I love to think about on, on, on Easter Sunday is just the resurrected Jesus the, Jesus in his resurrected state, in his glorified state. I mean, his face is shining like the sun. Uh, John in Revelation 1 says that when I saw the glorified Christ, he says he was so awesome, all I could do is fall down like a dead man. Paul talks about that when Christ appears and we finally see him, every human being will just fall. But John also says later in Revelation, he says, when I closely looked at Jesus, he looked like a slaughtered lamb. In other words, Jesus in his glorified resurrection state still bears his wounds and his scars. And why is that? Because the wounds and the scars are all part of Jesus' glory. So do you see the hope of this text? All the groaning, all the suffering, even our failures, the mistakes we've made, the sins that we have committed. God isn't erasing these things as if they never happen, but instead he, he's, he's working it all. He's, he's orchestrating it for our good. He's using it, all of it, to morph us into becoming something infinitely greater than if it had never happened. And Jesus didn't suffer so that we wouldn't have to suffer. 
but so that when we suffer, and I think this is the whole point of the text, that when we suffer and in our suffering look to him and rely on him and praise him, we're going to become just like him. I mean, can't you see that in your life already? I can already see it in my life. I put scars in my life. I've scarred others. So have you. And those scars never really go away, and yet God is, is working them into glory, the glory of what we're becoming. In Hebrew, the, wor- the word for glory is, is kavod, and kavod actually means weighty or, or, or weight. I mean, glory is, in, in the Hebrew mind, is something which possesses infinite degrees of, of, of substance and, and weightiness. That's why in the first psalm, Psalm 1, it says the wicked are like chaff. Chaff is, is the part of the grain that, that when you throw it up in the air, it just blows away with the wind. In other words, uh, Psalm 1 is saying the, the wicked are like light, lightweights. Well, C.S. Lewis uh, in The Great Divorce tells a story of a man who wakes up in a ghost town. Not only is this town completely empty, but it goes on for miles and miles and miles. And so he goes to the bus stop and he gets on a bus to leave the town. And as he's leaving the town, he finds out that that ghost town is, is hell. He also finds out that the bus that he is on is, is traveling on a road and it's going to heaven. And as he looks out the window, he, he's just awed by everything he sees, the pristine beauty and, and the grandeur. I mean, the beauty becomes ever more so stunning. But he also realizes that as they travel on, he is becoming lighter and lighter and lighter until to the point when the bus stops, he's but a ghost. And he steps out of the bus on this lush, beautiful green lawn. But the grass on his feet is like these sharp blades cutting into the soles of his feet. He sees this beautiful leaf and he reaches down to pick it up, but it's too heavy to even move. Then drops of rain begin to fall and they hit him like bullets. And all the while, he sees others who are not ghostly, but are these stunning, beautiful, physical, godlike creatures running, laughing. And they're inviting these ghostly lightweights to join them. And all they can say is, We can't. Heaven is too painful. What's going on here? This man is too light for heaven because heaven is a place of glory. This man is is too light to even walk in this beautiful place. He lacks glory. The weight of glory. And listen to what uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, 
For our light, momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The weight of glory comes through the groans. It comes through the affliction. It comes through the hard. It comes through the pain. And see, this is a path that that Christ blazed. He walked this path. He showed us this path. He showed us how to walk this path. And he said, broad is the path that leads to destruction. That's the path of the wicked, the unbelieving. They're like chaff. They're lightweights. But my path, as hard as it might be, it leads to life. Come follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and walk after me. What path are you walking? Because this is what it comes down to. You don't just get the glory because you groan. And the glory doesn't come cheaply. Look at Jesus. He gave it all. And then he says, I'm working all things to make you glorious. And that's why the hymn says it so well. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Maybe today is a day where you leave your old life of living for you and finding glory the world's way. And you trust Jesus for a new life, a resurrected life. And if you want that, then follow him. Follow him with everything you have. And bow all of your life at his feet, knowing his spirit makes his home in you, and he's working all things to make you great and to make you glorious. And one day, when we see him, we'll be like him. God, give us your spirit today. Pour, pour your spirit on us. Because I feel the flesh is weak. And we're so drawn into the world's way. We need your spirit, God, to cause our hearts to repent, turn to you, to follow you, to bow all of our life at your feet.